0: Brandon Easton is an award-winning graphic novelist and Hollywood screenwriter. Ten years after being published in 2002, he was finally published again and that was only because he took the initiative. Brandon self-funded the creation of the original graphic novel, Shadow Law. That book earned him a Glyph Award for Best Writer and helped him land a writing deal with Lion Forge Comics. His ultimate dream, though, was to become a Hollywood screenwriter. As his graphic novel career started to take off, he also landed a gig writing for the Thundercats reboot. Since then, he's worked on the Transformers, Agent Carter, and Avengers franchises. To learn more about Brandon Easton's unique journey and how he carved out a career on his own initiative, be sure to listen to today's episode of the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcatcher of choice. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for a link to the Patreon offerings. We've got some good ones for you. Thanks so much for being a listener and supporter of the show. Enjoy today's interview.
1: Brandon Easton, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Really appreciate your time and um, definitely looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah. Likewise, and for people who don't, this is one
0: of my canned questions. And uh, for people who don't know who you are, um, what would you like to share about yourself?
1: Well, um, let's see. I'm Brandon Easton. Um, I've been. Uh, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, originally, born and raised there. Um, I've been writing since probably my tenth grade year of high school. I didn't get paid to write until 2002, but you know, up until then, I had a lot of. Um, short stories that were unpublished through undergraduate through my undergraduate years and, and even to grad school. So I've been writing for a very, very long time, but mm. a professional only since the early 2000s. I've had the opportunity to work on a number of incredible properties, especially 80s franchise properties. Um, I broke into the um, Hollywood scene working on the uh, 2011 Warner Brothers animation version of Thundercats. Oh, cool. I, I bet a lot of people would be excited about that. Yeah. Uh, after that, I did um, some Transformers Rescue Bots, which is like a, which is still a kids-oriented uh, Transformers show. And after that, you know, I was at the same time working in the graphic novel world and was doing a bunch of stuff with uh, Lion Forge Comics, and then eventually IDW Comics, with some Marvel stuff, you know, scattered here and there. Uh, I, in 2015, I did the uh, Disney ABC writing program, hmm. which was very difficult to get into. And I was um, assigned to work on season two of Marvel's Agent Carter. Oh, yeah. ABC, and um, that was like my really big Hollywood, my first live action work ever and since then i've uh, worked on a ton of stuff that we'll obviously talk about and you know touch in on from time to time but uh, i've ha- i've been lucky enough to work in live action tv and film as well as uh, a lot of animation and the graphic novel world so uh, and actually prose i've been getting a lot more uh, prose work lately so um we can definitely talk about all that cool stuff and uh, just jump around and uh, yeah that's that's uh, me in a nutshell and i've been yeah. We to expand.
0: Well, we'll definitely dive in. and I, I imagine for some people, they're going to be either challenged or excited by the fact that as far as like modalities and mediums of storytelling, you're kind of all over the place, right? And, and you know, some people will hear that you need to specialize, right? And I'm curious how you think about storytelling and medium.
1: Okay, well, it depends on what you like. Um, there are people I know who are fantastic podcasters but can't write a short story to save their lives. You know, mm-hmm. I know people who are fantastic, you know, prose authors who can't do screenplays and definitely can't do the graphic novel scripting. So it all depends on what you like. Um, I've been fortunate enough. Especially during my college years, I went to Ithaca College for undergrad and then Boston University for grad school, where both have very, very, very powerful media programs, particularly for film, TV and, um, you know, creative writing. Mm -hmm. So I was trained as early as my sophomore year of college to write in different mediums. Hmm. You know, I, was, I took film classes. I took, you know, um, there, there was no comic book writing class, obviously, but I took film courses and TV writing courses as well as creative writing courses, you know, during all, I guess, was at like six, you know, six, seven years of my academic career. So with that being said, it doesn't work for everyone. I hmm. suggest that a person becomes a master of one craft or medium, but writing is writing. You know, stories are stories. I feel that if you have an emotional hook and something to say about the world, then you write in the medium that you feel will that 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 will like lend to your strengths. Mm. Some people are very verbose and need, you know, seven hundred pages to tell their story, and some people don't. They can tell their story in a hundred-page or one hundred twenty-page screenplay, or for television, a forty-five to uh, seventy-page teleplay. You know, so it all depends on where the person's strengths lie and what kind of story they want to tell. Do they want to tell a visual story, purely visual, or do they wanna do more of a literary story where you know you take the reader on a journey through just words instead of pictures. So mm. I would say it depends on the person. I mean, for me, I started really in comics, although I had been writing, you know, prose for many years. It wasn't until I broke into my, my first professional work was comic book work. Right. So things kind of like flowed from there, but i never turned my back on uh, my long-term goal, obviously. And I never turned my back on my long-term goal was to be a Hollywood screenwriter. So that's how I approached that. So that was your big goal, capital
0: G goal was to become a Hollywood writer. Absolutely. So how did the comics gig come about then in 2002? You mentioned you were paid for the first time and that was comics.
1: Yeah, that's a long story. I'll, I'll try to make it as short as humanly possible. Um, when I lived in Boston, I worked for a couple of um, pop culture companies. One of them was New England Comics, you know, the people behind originally the Tick franchise. Mm. That stuff. Mm-hmm. And the other one was an a Asian pop culture company called Anime Crash. And at that time, a lot of American comic book illustrators were basically, for all intents and purposes, ripping off Japanese manga and anime uh, visual styles for their artwork. Okay. Yeah. As a result, I got to meet a lot of local Boston uh comic book creators. And from there, um, I made a t- it took me years, but I made a whole lot of connections in the biz and eventually met with a guy named Pat Lee. Hmm. And those of you know, those of you out there who you know. Copy. Is that the capital L E E? Yeah, <laughs> Pat Lee. Lee. Yeah, who used to um, own uh, and run uh, Dreamwave Productions. Okay, And they had a bunch of big books. They had Warlands, they did the Transformers reboots, they did all kinds, of, like Street Fighter stuff. It, it, they were just fantastic. And I, me and another guy, we got hired to do a book called Arcanium for mm. Dreamwave Productions. And that was my first actual comic book gig. And that would have put us in the spring of 2002. Yeah. So,
0: I have to ask, right? Sure. And this is, this is kind of a softball question, but why writing? Like, obviously, I had a draw for you, but like,
1: why that? There's... Oh, when I was very young, I used to go to the movies a lot, and I'm, I don't have any brothers or sisters. I'm my only child. Hmm. So, while I was a kid, I spent countless hours at movie theaters in Baltimore. And one of the things that would happen for me, and, some, and, and I think a lot of people who are screenwriters and media creators have this experience. But when the movie would end, the, the movie wouldn't end for me in my head. Like, I would imagine what else would be going on in that world. Mm. After the roll. Right. But for me, it wasn't necessarily writing as much as I didn't want the story to end. Mm. And over time, what wound up happening was I learned how everything worked in terms of um, that stuff. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know. And slowly but surely, like day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, I started to learn that the reality was um I wanted to be a writer. I didn't understand what I wanted to do, but it kind of hit me that maybe it was being a writer. That's what I was um actually interested in. And in that, and that didn't really happen until my sophomore year of high school mm-hmm. when I had written a In a spiral-bound notebook, freehand, by the way, in cursive, no less, (laughs) I had written an alien invasion story, Mm. and um, I think I did about maybe four or five chapters of it, Mm -hmm. and some of my upperclassmen friends, who had a lot more faith in me than I did at the time, they were just like, dude, we need to, like, show this to people. So so I was a sophomore, but somehow a good chunk of the junior class, the 11th graders, Mm. all had read my story. And they were just like, dude, this is awesome, blah, 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 blah. And I was blown away by that. And I think that was kind of the seed that got planted in that moment That's told me, you know, maybe you can make some money off of this someday. <laughs> and that's pretty much where it started. I mean, there was a lot more of, of, of the soul searching and yeah. questioning whether or not I belong or if I'm good enough. But really, after a certain point in time, I just threw myself headlong into it and didn't look back.
0: Hmm. So, like, how did it come up even that people saw your work? Were you were you eager to share or was it people were curious about what you were holding on to? Was it a class assignment?
1: No, I, I was... <laughs> it's, 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 this is a crazy story. I was riding the bus. Um, I, I went to a magnet high school. We had to test into it. So it was way on the other side of town. Mm. And I had to take, you know, like, you know, Baltimore City buses to get to, you know, like, like with me and ten, several hundred thousand other kids or whatever. But... Uh, On the way home, me and my buddies used to, you know, ride together. And sometimes I would just get quiet and start writing in my notebook. Mm. And they didn't know what I was doing. So one of these days, one of my buddies had noticed that um, I was really intense. I was, you know, I was really heavily concentrating on this, um, you know, manuscript or whatever. And he's like, well, can I read what you wrote? And this guy was, he was in 11th grade, a good friend of mine named Will. And he took it. And, and I gave it to him. I, I didn't know he was going to show it to anybody. <laughs> Were you like nervous? and? No, I mean, I, I just You're thought like... because they, they, the, we, we all used to watch Star Trek The Next Generation together. Uh-huh. Because the thing about Star Trek The Next Generation specifically is it started when I was in middle school and ended in the middle of my college years. So I kind of grew up with that show. Mm-hmm. So while I was in high school, it was the end of season three. And that was my sophomore year, excuse me. And that was the best of both worlds part one, where Picard gets assimilated by the Borg. So we were all big sci-fi geeks and nerds at the time. And Mm -hmm. he knew I love science fiction. So I just thought he was going to take it and give me his ideas. I didn't know what he actually did was read it all and give it to this girl he had a crush on. And then she read it and thought it was awesome. And she gave it to somebody else. And then, like I said, like in a week, the whole junior class, well, not the whole junior class, but a good chunk of them were congratulating me on my story, and I well, was blown away. From yeah, that's yeah, gonna, was, that's going to be
0: hugely encouraging, and
1: it was because yeah. I didn't think it was anything at the time. But in any case, that's kind of uh, how that got started.
0: You know? Yeah i love that you can pin it to the season of of star trek the next generation and the title right the best of both worlds so that that's got you some geek cred right there well i mean i can i can do this all day to
1: quote captain america
0: but what a great what a great title by the way the best of both worlds that was a great episode
1: yeah so
0: (laughs) so your first paid gig comes about and you write in comics like how is have, were you studying comics or were you reading kids uh, comics as a kid growing up because i get the impression that writing a story in comics there's a different craft or form to it than say a short story or a novel
1: okay so to answer your question your first the first part of that i don't know if there even to this day is a comic book writing class i mean mm. i've taught comic book writing workshops but I don't know if there's a dedicated course to it anywhere. I mean, it probably is at this point, you know, in in, in these days. But with that being said, the only way back in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s that you could learn how to write comics was to get extremely lucky and find samples of comic book scripts somewhere online or – actually, there was no internet – somewhere in the world. Um, For me specifically, when I lived in Boston, the Boston Public Library actually had a book – that broke down how you made comic books because there was, there really isn't a, um, there was no platform for that. There was no roadmap. Um, the closest thing to that in the eighties was the official Marvel comics tryout book, which was a way for people who wanted to break into Marvel comics to submit their work legally. And they had samples of scripts in there, but even that was very expensive. So, um, I had to learn from just intense research Talking to comic book writers at big conventions when I got old enough to go to conventions. And then in the late 90s, when the internet started to come about, I spent a ridiculous amount of time on um, something called the Deja News Groups, D E G A. Yeah. And the one I used to go to was rec.arts.comics.misc as a miscellaneous. And in that, forum or sub whatever you called that, the news group, you would find actual comic book writers who worked at Marvel and DC at that time. Mm. And a couple of them actually responded to me. And from that point on, I would just ask a million questions. And then I would meet editors at conventions. And again, this is, you know, as more time went on. And that's how I learned how to write a comic book script. Now, in terms of the story... The, the mental process of writing a comic book or graphic novel script is basically learning how to write a series of still images in narrative sequ- in, a, in a narrative sequence. Basically, mm. so you know, you write your script is like page one, panel one. You describe the panel. You put in your you know you put the dialogue spots, and then panel two. Describe the panel dialogue. If there is dialogue, you put in sound effects, and then. You hand all that off once it's done to the editorial team who gives it to an artist. If you're working with a big company, if you're doing it independently, you personally usually hire the artist and you just hope that they translate what you wrote the way you wanted it to be translated. Mm. And that's how you do comic book
0: scripts. Okay. And just... It reminds me of like screenwriting where you It is to a yeah. point. And then you hand off to a director and trust mm-hmm. them to or <laughs> it's out of your control, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, what's the balance in your career of work that you self-generated and, and, and did maybe independently, like your own kind of IPs versus doing work for others?
1: Um, Um, that's a good question. I would say that, right. Like I've had more paid gigs recently in the last, I'd say six years than I've been able to, produce original material. And I don't like that, although the paid gigs pay, your real long-term success comes from original material. Mm. And I'm definitely, desperately trying to get back into getting more original material done. Mm. And that's basically where I'm at right now. So I ha- I'm gainfully employed, thank God, but I'm not able to devote as much time as I would like to my Brandon Easton stuff, as opposed to you know deadline stuff from major companies. Yeah. And,
0: you know, I can imagine having been a songwriter and co-writer and writing my own stuff and writing for others that there's, it's got to be different when you're writing for yourself and you're writing for somebody else and paid work. But at the same time, you must have some of your voice that you're getting paid to bring forward. Right.
1: Um, I mean, I think that's consistent, whether it's mine or if I'm working for somebody, because when you get hired to work for, let's say Marvel or DC or Dark Horse or whoever, it could be Sony, it could be Warner Brothers or whatever, you know, you you're, you're not, you're not just getting hired because you have talent and you know how to write a script. You're getting hired because you're bringing something to that story that nobody else really can. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously if it's my original material, I don't have as much of a filter. But I've worked on a ton of licensed properties over the years, and people know, they can tell that it's me for better or for worse, <laughs> you know, because I do put my fandom in it. I put my ideas in it. I put some of my soul and, and uh, beliefs into my stories. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, um, I think that's true regardless of who you are. You do have to like imprint your voice into the work without... Compromising the integrity of the licensed material—that's mm. the trick. And has that been a challenge? Was that
0: ever a challenge, or something you had to figure out and find the the balance for doing?
1: Yes, I can tell you now that there was a point in time uh, about three years ago where I got into a really nasty discussion with an editorial team because they misunderstood what me and my co-writer were trying to accomplish. Mm. On this one particular comic series i don 't usually have a co writer i usually i 'm not really good at that that type of collaboration in terms of comics, but um, me and this guy worked really well together, and we had a great story dealing with a very touchy and complicated social justice problem mm. and the editorial team i don 't think they understood that we were we, we were pretty sophisticated grown-up people, that we wouldn't go into really dark places with the subject matter. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, they just seemed to assume that we weren't either intelligent or skilled enough to not make it exploitative. Mm -hmm. And that really enraged me to no end. And the conversation did not go well, but I felt very, very satisfied that I was able to get my point of view across Mm -hmm. without being, you know, disagreeable or rude or cruel. But I was very disappointed in their lack of understanding. Let me put it like that. Right. Because it felt like they didn't have enough faith in us as storytellers to be able to tell an intelligent story about a very complex and troubling social uh, problem. Right. So
0: maybe the key word there is nuance, right? Like nuance in storytelling, you know, is is a valuable commodity that's not always present.
1: Right in In this particular case, without going too much into it, it was dealing with i think like a human trafficking subject mm. and I felt that they didn't think we could pull it off mm-hmm. without being exploitative or demeaning people i don't I don't know what they thought honestly because their, their their justification and rationale made absolutely no sense to me, right. but later, we both Got the opportunity to tell in different places. Me and this other writer, that is, got the opportunity to tell that same story in other places, and people were blown away by it. Mm So, you know, it kind of was like this thing where you need to trust the people you hire to be, you know, professionals. Yeah. And so so that's, that's, that's the, that to me would be the biggest situation I could think of.
0: Right. And that makes sense. I had a conversation with another screenwriter and, you know, just about, one of the things that came up is that approval process and how much room is there really to, to tell contemporary meaningful stories that challenge the status quo. And right. Uh, and I'm curious in 2020, where you think we're at on that.
1: Um, uh, It's tricky. Um, I'm trying to figure out the best way to answer that one.
0: Right. And I, under, you know, I understand when you're doing a lot of paid work, you know, it's, you know there's a balance to, to walk.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I do does not venture into like sociological, political, economic issues in general, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I, for example, I just worked on the, um, the Transformers War for Cybertron series on Netflix. It's current, it, it debuted in late July, Cool. And that whole first season is all purely a like band of brothers, saving Private Ryan, you know, uh, know, Hamburger Hill type of, you know, Full Metal Jacket type of story in the Transformers universe. Mm -hmm. It is uncompromising, it's very dark. We get into the not only the soul, like the soul searching that war creates in a population, but also the political economics of what a war does to a population. And we did this on a Transformers show Mm -hmm. because that show is not geared toward children at all but my point is is that we we didn't pontificate we really got into Optimus prime and megatron's motivations for the cybertronian civil war and it's you can actually see both sides so it wasn't a thing where we were trying to throw a particular political or sociological idea into the mix we -hmm. let people decide that then there's other things i've written where there's no opportunity to kind of mix in any social commentary, which is absolutely fine because that's not necessary all of the time. And then there's other books I've worked on where that's what it's about, (laughs) you know, and other comics and TV shows I've worked on where the actual point is to talk about a social uh, problem or economic or political problem. So Mm. it it, it depends on the project, really, because I think that nowadays – we're in a very bizarre place where on one hand there are issues that need to be addressed, particularly with sexual harassment and racial um, discrimination behind the scenes of media companies. But then there's a thing where cancel culture is going after everybody. If you don't happen to agree with whatever they believe. And I think that's also, you know, kind of defeating the purpose of uh, freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Right. So while I do understand that there are offensive things in the world, you know, I don't think a per- this is my personal belief, and everyone's free to disagree. But I don't think a person should be offended by every little thing, because I grew up in a time when comedians like Eddie Murphy's early career could not happen in 2020 or 2021, because he used language and derogatory terms towards certain populations that literally you cannot get away with now that mm-hmm. you can get away in 1984. But I also grew up with like Richard Pryor, Red Fox, a bunch of other stuff, like just like a lot of black comedians who just did not care whether they offended you because they had something to say. Yeah. So I'm not of a generation that's easily offended by words. I'm more offended by people's actions or lack thereof. So for me, I like stories that push the envelope. I like stories that don't use safe language because that's not how people actually operate in the real world. So for me... I don't really have a problem with saying things that I believe in and putting that in my writing if the space is allowed. Even in my original material, I'm not getting on a soapbox because usually that's not what people are paying for. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and
0: I, you know, I notice just casually as a casual observer that um, in comics there seems to be kind of a leading edge in having different voices come through and uh, addressing issues with some authenticity. Um, and it, it, to some degree, I noticed some of that bleeding over into what Netflix is putting out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, is that something people aspiring authors and writers should be excited about? Like, you mean in terms of the diversity of expression now? Yeah. And oh. representation yeah. Just, and addressing issues really,
1: right? Like the things that used to be the 800 grill in the room, you couldn't talk about. Yeah, you know, first of all, you no. Know, and don't get me wrong, while I am very strongly against cancel culture, mm-hmm. I am very much into the fact that everybody's starting to get their chance to speak and have their stories told without the same old gatekeepers stopping those voices. Because that's really what the problem has been. It's not, I mean, I'm not saying there's not institutional racism in the business, because there is. And it's well-documented, and it doesn't take a, you know, it's not rocket science. It's clearly delineated. However... It wasn't that there were like, you know, neo-Nazis as publishers or editors. It was that the gatekeepers were people who had a very narrow perspective of who should write stories or who, who could write stories. And they kept out a lot of people who are finally now getting the chance to tell their stories. And, mm-hmm. when I, when I, when, and when I say that, I'm specifically saying like majority of women, especially women of color, men of color, people of color in general just never got a shot. In a lot of these places. And I know this because I'm usually one of the few in these spaces and I see how it operates. So when you see how this stuff plays out, you you understand how hard it is to get your foot in the door and then stay there. That's the trick. Mm -hmm. So I'm very happy that voices that are not even my own because you know, obviously I'm not a part of the LBGTQ community, but I'm glad that those folks now have an opportunity to tell their stories without being heavily censored or shot down or shut down for that matter. So, and so forth and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if anybody should aspire to whatever. I mean, you, you tell the story you want to tell. And if that story happens to have a social message to it, then, you know, Godspeed, you know, I'm not going to you know judge that. But you know, it all depends also on what these companies want in the marketplace, because mm-hmm. I guarantee, if tomorrow a book came out about, you know, uh, I guess you call it dwarves or little people, you know, it, like you know, like like the guy like Gotta Play Tyrion, like what's his name, um, uh, Peter Dinklage, right? Yeah. If it was a book series of like dwarves who were superheroes, and that series sold like, you know, millions of copies. I guarantee every publisher out there is going to be looking for something just like that, you know, and that's what it really comes down to too. And this is what no one talks about a lot of times is what the marketplace wants versus following trends. Some authors try to follow trends and they lose other people create something brand new and therefore create a trend. Honestly, you need to be somewhere in the middle because you need to have something that people can relate to, but also something they may not have ever felt or experienced before in a story. Mm. And, uh, and, and, that of course, again, is the trick. <laughs> That's not easy.
0: Right. And,
1: and maybe,
0: you know, some of the trick of that is the craft and just how engaging the storytelling is in general. right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, Maybe this is a good time to talk about, you know, you 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 mentioned in an email to me about um your success getting a screenplay through um a Chinese screenplay called Killing Beta through a censorship board in China. And I'm I'm curious about how that came about and what that experience was like.
1: Okay, well, um I was working with a media company that's gonna be debuting a brand new um, style of uh, comic, like AR and VR storytelling in the comic book medium. I think they're gonna be coming out probably in 2021. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, while working with this company, um, the guy who owns it, um, the CEO of the company, um, it, uh, was born and raised in China. Um, I think he has dual citizenship. Very smart guy, very smart guy. And he liked my work that I was do- his, my, my scripting work for him, and then he mentioned that he knew some producers in China, who were looking for someone to write an action. Excuse me, it wasn't action. It was a horror thriller originally, and I wrote the whole screenplay as a horror thriller, which they asked for. And then a couple of months later, they say, you know what? We don't want a horror thriller. We want an action thriller, a sci-fi action thriller along the, um, in the tone of source code or something like that. And I was like, that's a page one rewrite, which I literally had to do. So I had to rewrite an entire screenplay from scratch (laughs) with the new concept, but they really loved it. And they gave it to the Chinese um, censorship board and even the Chinese censorship board was like, wow, this guy's awesome. I'm glad you hired him. And I was stunned that the Chinese government liked my work. I mean, that has to mean something to somebody somewhere. So yeah. um, that, that's in a nutshell, that's how that happened.
0: Cool. And it's interesting just in the context to think about then that you know it sounded like it was for you perhaps a straightforward process. And yet in the context of it, he, you know mentioned you're the first westerner to to get through
1: that process yeah i I had no idea I would it, it really did it was uh, <laughs> I'm still st- stunned by that because I think it'll have more of an impact upon everybody one, once the movie gets made because mm-hmm. the movie obviously they're dealing with issues in China right now with the uh, pandemic, but once the movie is made and it hits the press. I think that the impact of what I achieved in that scenario is going to really, you know, kind of, you know, echo across the business. And I think it's going to, it's going to make it's going to make a difference and it's it's already made a difference in some quarters for me, but specifically it's going to make a big difference when that movie drops. So yeah, looking forward to that.
0: I know. uh, Well, congratulations on that. I know people have been talking for years in different markets and sectors about the opportunities to reach that audience. and. I imagine there's like a cynical version of looking at that and the non-cynical creative version which is, you know, you're telling a story, right, about human beings to be consumed by other human beings, but right <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> you know so so you you've got all sorts of work at play, you and you are screenwriting, right? And yes, and, and so You've achieved your capital G goal. Has has the capital G goal kind of shifted over time
1: since achieving that? Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, it goes back to something I said earlier about getting your foot in and staying there. Yeah. Um, goal. First, the first goal is to be recognized. The second mm. goal is to actually get hired. And the third goal is to stay in the business once you got over that ridiculously high wall with the moat filled with electric uh, alligators you know, um, it's it's a nightmare to get in. And the, the business, I mean, for anybody, it's a nightmare to get in because the gatekeeping is so intense and so profound that this is why this industry is made up of the sons and daughters and cousins and frat brothers and sorority sisters of other people who have money because they are the people who can get in with relative ease versus the rest of us slobs who have to actually like, you know, damn near kill ourselves to break into that and break into the industry.
0: Right. And And is that just because, you know, the cost of living and existing,
1: right? Like just accessibility of sticking around long enough to stick. You know what you, you literally hit the nail on the head. I mean, that, that's not the only thing that keeps this industry prohibitive but it is a major factor that you have to basically work a bunch of really crappy retail jobs or um, know somebody or be willing to get into something illicit in order to survive because Los Angeles is a very expensive place to be yeah and you know i didn't get into like what i went through i moved here in 2008 in the midst of the worst economic recession since yeah. 1929 yeah. you know and when i landed here in la Every studio on the, in, in this town and every studio on the planet was like cutting every corner they possibly could. So it took me from 2008 to about 2010 to really make any headway before I got that gig on the uh, Thundercats reboot. So um, during that time, I had three jobs. You know, I worked at Barnes & Noble. I worked at GameStop. And I worked as an adjunct professor at a community college, which to be honest was the worst job of the three. (laughs) So uh, you know, (laughs) so that was my experience. And if I had and I had connections because of Ithaca College, and I had connections because of Boston University. Right. I was gonna I
0: was gonna say two years is pretty fast, but you got a lot of money to survive. Meanwhile.
1: if I did not have those connections from 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 my alma maters, respect, respectively, I would not have gotten into this business when I did. I, I don't know what would have happened to me, because if I didn't have that one connection, that it was one guy I used to they used to work at Sony Animation I met years ago who actually remembered me, mm. and we we had lunch. We talked a little bit after that. He introduced me to the guy who was the executive producer over at uh, Warner Brothers Animation but Thundercat show after that months passed and I got a call one day saying, Hey, you know, you know, we, we need a, we need a writer for this one. And you know, you, are you interested? And I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> Cause they had 26 episodes and they, and they, they gave me episode. I co-wrote episode 24. Okay. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about that. Like,
0: was there a writer's room for, for that? Or was it kind of like you were in your own little bubble?
1: Um. You know, there was a writer's room of some kind, obviously, because they had set up 26 episodes of the first season. Mm -hmm. But what winds up happening with some shows is that they'll have a writer's room. Let's say if you have a 26 episode order, you'll probably have a writer's, the writer's room do anywhere between 15 to 20, which leaves six for freelancers. Mm. So I never sat in a writer's room for Thundercats, the 2011 Thundercats. I came in for a couple of meetings where they outlined what they needed for that episode which was which was already kind of set up and you kind of just come in you pitch your take on it and then you go from there and you go home and you write the outline and and then you go to script and that's basically how that happened it was a yeah. very once i once i got that email with the green light things moved very quickly hmm. it, did
0: you have to worry about like continuity issues at all or you know it's kind of a craft
1: thing you know yeah they because it they had outlined all 26 episodes there wasn't going to be a continuity problem okay and you
0: had access to the outline and therefore you could
1: i had i had access to the outlines that mattered for my episode (laughs) let me put it like that because every episode did not it was all one big story but there were a couple of filler episodes and the beginning and the end of my episode connected to the overall arc, but the core of the episode was kind of filler. So it didn't really connect with the big story. So as you, much could t- you could
0: almost tell any kind of story you wanted to. Right, which you had was, that I mean, right. did.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Cool. <laughs> and what did you end up deciding to do with that? It's kind of curiosity, if you remember.
1: Oh, you mean for the Thundercats episode?
0: Yeah, like how did you approach, like, coming up?
1: Oh, okay. Well, story? basically... They had an idea, and this is episode 24, it's called The Soul Sever, S-E-V-E-R. Okay. Um, it, it was basically going to be, we, we, used to, we, we called it the Blade Runner episode, because it was about whether or not artificial intelligence has a soul. So mm-hmm. my take on it was thinking about Rutger Howard's character in Blade Runner. And, you know, the tears and rain sequence. So we had this whole thing where they had already designed what the character looked like. They just needed more of a story motivation for what he was doing. And what this character was doing was removing the life essence from living beings or dying beings and then putting that life essence into a mechanical body. And and the whole question was whether or not that was one, obviously, you know, moralistic, you know, to do that. But also what happens to that person's soul? Like are they a new creature, or did you just trap a living being into a metal body that they don't they don't want to be in? So that was kind of our episode. That, yeah. that, that's how we approached that one. <laughs>
0: that's pretty high concept. you know, how did how did that sit as far as in the realm of Thundercats for the season?
1: Um, it was a great episode, I think. It was really set up to help the main characters, find the location of a very important artifact that they needed so they got caught up in this adventure in the middle of the main adventure Mm -hmm. so it didn't that, that that was the beautiful thing about it was that it didn't negatively impact or in any way throw off because throw off the main arc because they had already outlined it all so again we just kind of plugged in a story action sequences beginning middle and end and you know and they went off to animate it
0: Hmm. Mm. Very cool. And yeah. how did how did the graphic novel
1: Shadow Law come about? Oh, my first one. Oh, woo, man! You're asking some long ones. Um, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Uh, okay. Um, when I had broken into the comic book industry at, at Dreamwave Productions in 2002 on a book Arcanium, um, I learned the hard way that Okay, I got to back up a bit. Okay, the conventional wisdom about breaking into the comic book industry is that once you break in, you will get work after Mm -hmm. that because people saw that you could break in and that you can hit a deadline and you know how to tell a story. I found out the hard way that that's not true at all. The way to really make it in comics is to get to know a bunch of other writers, if you're a writer, and if you're an illustrator, get to know other illustrators. And then over the course of time, have them realize that you're not a lunatic or a nutcase Mm -hmm. and have them (laughs) like enough to refer you to the editors that hire people at the comic book companies, whether it's a small company or if it's Marvel or DC, you know, the editors are the gatekeepers there. So after I did some work at Dreamwave from 2002 up until 2004, I, I, nobody knew who I was, and the people who did know me, I wasn't exactly friends with. Mm-hmm. So there were a series of personal problems that sprung up, and a series of professional problems that sprung up that made it impossible for me to advance at that time, right? Mm-hmm. So I, the advice I got was that look, what you've done at Dreamwave Productions simply is not enough to move the needle. You need to create an original. Project that you put out on the marketplace so that people can see that you do have an original voice and that you can, you know, do it yourself basically. Because that's kind of the badge of honor that you can actually get it out there, right? Yeah. Because that entails hiring an art team, that entails um, hiring a letterer, hiring a colorist, hiring a uh, editor sometimes, and then on top of all that, you have to find a way to get it distributed to Uh comic book shops and bookstores so you're basically your own comic book studio as an independent creator that's an incredibly high bar of entry yes and yes exactly and i didn't realize how high it was so between 2004 and 2010 it literally took me six years and eight artists that i had to like hire and fire because people were very flaky and didn't finish what they started I had to go through a whole horrific process of hiring and firing before I got that book done, which is why, if anyone looks at Shadow Law, the first 24, 26 pages or whatever is one guy, and the rest of the graphic novel is a completely different artist. Mm. And I tried to find people who were similar, but man, it, it was not easy. And um, yeah, so that's what um, happened to me in the interim, you know, and I had to learn that. And that's how Shadow Law came about. And Shadow Law, I started in 2004 and it didn't hit a bookstore or comic book shop until January of 2012. Right. So that's, that was my, uh, that was my. Uh, a whole other a hurdle. File by fire, so to speak. Yeah. And well,
0: that's interesting. So you were plugging into the kind of the traditional distribution
1: model and getting. At that time. There. Yeah. Yeah. This is before web comics really and digital distribution really took hold. Is it still the early two thousands?
0: So what were like what were some of the things that came up that are still relevant now as far as that goes for self starting and doing your own publishing, like those challenges or hurdles that come up?
1: Like 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 can you be a little bit more specific, like 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 you mean in the production process and the hiring? Yeah, you know, I'm oh. curious
0: you must have learned some things in that two year span, right? Lessons Six learned. Years, yeah. As uh, far as far as like once it was done actually, getting it, was, it out there,
1: right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I learned, I learned, okay. Wow. Uh, I've learned several things from that. And I always tell people this stuff. Um, number one, you got to have the money to afford to pay people. Mm. I mean, and then by people, I meant your art team, your create, you know, the, the illustrator, your penciler, your inker, your colorist letterers, you need to have the money like asking people to work for free, which is what a lot of people do. Strangely enough, it works for some people if you give them 50% of the IP, Mm -hmm. but generally speaking, people want to get paid. And that was number one. I learned that more than anything else that in order to get it done faster, pay people up front and you're going to have less of a problem. Mm -hmm. Make sure you have a good contract that protects you and the creative team. Um, Obviously, it's a work-for-hire contract, but you got to make sure you have the right one so you're not signing away anything that's important that you should own. That's Mm -hmm. deeply important, extremely important. Um, Another thing is to make sure that you're not afraid to cut people loose if they're not doing what you need them to do. Mm. A lot of times, especially when you're new, you're really afraid to fire people. You really feel weird and guilty about cutting people loose and one of the reasons it took so long for me was because i i was hanging on to a couple of guys who just would never get it done like in fact if i didn't let them you know get rid of them that book would have never come out mm-hmm. it would have never gotten done and that was a very important skill like how to be an actual boss because yeah. you are the boss once you're an indie comics creator yeah. and i had to really get tough and like start firing people and just cutting people off and being like, look, dude, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. I don't know what the problem is, but you're done. And once I started to get you know, comfortable with the prospect of hiring and firing people, the whole process went a lot better.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are things that are going to come up for people who are like at the aspiring phase. And I guess the reason yeah. I ask is because these accessibility issues, right? And people are listening who are like maybe considering, is this for me, not for me, you know, is there a light at the end of the tunnel or are there mentors who, you know, like there is a way to thread the needle if you just pay attention. Right. Like, you know, I'm just trying to get to, is there an outlet for my original story, my concept?
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, <sighs> I feel like if a person really wants to do it, they're going to make it happen no matter what. Mm. I mean, I think my biggest pet peeve when speaking to... Because I I even dislike the term aspiring writer because you're either a writer or you're not. You know what I mean? I mean, I think what people really are trying to say is whether or not they are published or unpublished or if they're discovered talent or undiscovered talent or whatever the case may be. Because when you say aspiring... And I, and, and from personal experience and dealing with people at conventions, at panels and workshops and classes I've taught, a lot of people, the minute they hang that aspiring label over their heads, they just never do anything. They just keep being aspiring, you know, yeah. as opposed to just getting the goddamn thing done and getting a uh, first draft out the way. So for me, you know, it's not so much about the obstacles. It's about what your coping mechanisms are. Mm-hmm. And that's I think that's a, like a national, or even global problem with humanity these days. Like younger generations, in my experience, are simply not learning coping mechanisms, like particularly for failure and rejection. And yeah. I will say this, in, in, in this business, writing, you are going to get rejected more times in one month than you ever have in your entire life once you really start submitting your work for um, you know, um, approval or submitting it for consideration. Yeah. So I've met, and I, and I will say this, I'm glad you brought this up. I will say this one thing. If you can't handle being told no, if you cannot handle rejection, if you think just because you spent 75 hours straight working on your manuscript or rewriting it or whatever, or, or eight months, writing your novel or screenplay no one cares mm. it's it, it, it's either good or it isn't and, it, and that is subjective but there are shitty screen excuse my language there are crappy screenplays. i don't care it, it, there. okay <laughs> there are shitty screenplays out there yeah and there are screenplays that are not structured well there are people who don't know even how to write a screenplay yeah. or a comic book script or even a manuscript for a novel or a play a stage play you know those folks are the ones who are the problem, and those are the ones that believe, I don't know where they get this idea, that the minute you get it done, the the world should just open up for you. Yeah. And I've met so many writers like that. I, I don't know where they get these ideas from, but they they write a book or a comic. They do something. They, they get one thing done or some horrible thing they get done, and then they get angry that they didn't suddenly become millionaires overnight because they got this thing done. Yeah. I can't tell you how many people, I mean, I know people who were who friends of mine yeah. who display those attitudes. And some of them have left LA permanently yeah. because quite frankly, they didn't have what it took. They yeah. did not have the coping mechanism.
0: Right. That's basically it's the, like, it's not the talent. It's the coping mechanism
1: part. Exactly. And I mean, the the is ex-
0: expectations of how this right. works.
1: But let me say this. The town is insane. The industry is insane. The way people treat each other in this town is it's abominable sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes, it takes a strong will. You need to have an ironclad soul to make it in this town. Because mm-hmm. if you are easily offended or easily hurt or easily distracted or easily discouraged, you need to get the hell out of here immediately because nobody cares.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like maybe like counseling or self-work is a good foundation to the business. Nobody
1: plan. cares.
0: <laughs> Nobody cares. Yeah. Well, I think as we get, you know, as we get into this journey,
1: Oh, hello. Yeah. It sounds like we had a hiccup. Oh, okay. So I'll repeat that. So basically they don't care about where you came from. Your circumstances of birth, you know, and it, and, I'm, and I'm not counting in all the, you know, racial and gender stuff. I mean, just in general, right? Nobody cares unless you can make them money, mm. and that's it. I mean, it. it that's it, it. Doesn't even get any darker or simpler than that. It's all about money,
0: right? Well, you mentioned a couple of the other aspects. It's about money, but there's like the. There's you dropped out a couple times. Hold on for a second. Yep, we're still recovering. Okay. Go ahead. Cool. So it sounds like we're recovering. So you mentioned it's it's all nobody cares unless you can make them money. But to make people money, you have to understand craft and be an accessible, decent human being, probably to even be able to approach somebody to make a pitch, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, okay. So the, the the way. it goes in terms of the personality and all that stuff, and like basically, you know, what you need to do to kind of ingratiate yourself to the business. I mean, obviously, having material, obviously, number one is key. Mm. There are a million examples of people who've had successful careers only after they put material on the marketplace.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about Quentin Tarantino, yeah. uh, Kevin Smith. Uh, more recently, specifically, you have a woman named um, Issa Rae who yeah. did, you know, does Insecure on HBO. She did, a, she did a web series that she self-funded called The Misadventures of an Awkward Black Girl. Yeah. And that's how she got known because her web series was so well done yeah. that she had a voice that, that wasn't really being seen in the marketplace at mm. that time. And she did gangbusters with that, yeah. you know. And the list, I mean, what's her name? Felicia Day you know, who did the the Guild uh, web series that originally was streamed through Xbox Live. Yeah, and yeah. Built that whole geek and sundry thing. You know, all, I mean, th- th- there's countless numbers of people, I can name them all day, who did something on their own first and then got the respect of the business so they can make more money for themselves and other people. Yeah. And that, to me, is what everybody should be doing mm-hmm. because they're no longer hiring people that they have to train. They're no longer hiring writers that they have to groom. They want people who have a fan base already that they can plug into an existing franchise. That's what's really going on. And if a writing teacher or a podcaster or a uh, workshop guy or girl or woman or whatever is not telling you this, then they're lying or they're just ignorant of the process because that's what's really going on. People want you to create something first so they can tell that you, whether or not you're worth, um, an investment. Another group, um, the guys who did, um, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. They did their own thing first and then they got to the show based on that thing and the list goes on and on. So that's kind of my point there.
0: Yeah. So you're creating your own value first and showing exactly. your own...
1: right. And that,
0: that, that requires a lot of, Shifting perspective, and and maybe what we're fighting is the mythology that we grow up around that celebrates yep. the debut no- novel, the first somebody's first novel they ever wrote is a hit, and transforms the landscape of publishing at least for <laughs> twenty thousand sales, right. or the young sixteen-year-old prodigy singer-songwriter guitar player, right, who was just born singing and playing good, you know whatever it is, right. We sell these stories of instant success.
1: Right. And, and, you know, (laughs) bro, you just, I mean, you, you, that's another nail you hit like that idea that you're just going to overnight become this massive success. It's nonsense. Yeah. You know, everybody's overnight success story is 10 years long, you know, (laughs) that's the old joke. Um, yeah i mean <laughs> it, it is and that's about it right 10 years pretty much And i'll give you another i'll give you another great example of this um andy weir who did yeah. the martian you know mm-hmm. some people know of you know they, they know about the movie and blah 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 but you know he did that originally as a self published project because he is a nasa nerd and he self-published it first and then got the attention of a publishing house who then distributed it and the book did wildfire but yep. The trick is that he did it first. He put it out first. He didn't wait. He didn't send it out to some publisher and pray that they would take a chance on him. He took a chance on himself. And in a world with laptops, in a world with cell phones that you can shoot and edit entire movies on these days, nobody has an excuse not to have content. And I strongly Mm -hmm. believe that. Yeah. Uh,
0: you, You may not have like, content that looks like somebody's 50 or 500 million dollar budget but you'll have content right
1: i mean the thing is no one's saying you need to be you know spielberg or christopher nolan in your first you know project but if you have a story to tell you know tell that story and stop waiting what a lot of people are doing they're waiting for permission yes and they're waiting for somebody to come along and say, you know, you should probably write that. No, you have to be a self-starter. And if, oh, that's another thing. If you're not a self-starter, you probably should get the hell out of this town. <laughs> it's like, no one's going to be like patting you on the back and spoon feeding you unless you're, you are a legacy already. And if your dad or mom or aunt or fraternity brother or sorority sister or whoever isn't already established, you're going to have to break your back in half to get from point A to point B,, yeah. and it's just what it is, and it, I didn't make the rule I just I just survived it. You know? <laughs>
0: yeah. I didn't make the rule, I just survived it. <laughs> I like that, yeah, you know like some some industries and pockets of the creative world are better at setting the the norms and establishing the norms for people who are coming in and helping yeah. them understand what they're walking into than others. Right. Like if you walk into Nashville to be a songwriter, you're going to get culturally adjusted in the first two days of going to like, they have a not for profit, right. That's set up just to onboard people into Nashville and like establish what the culture is and the ground rules and reality checks. And you'll hear people's creation stories, that 10 year creation story, right. Mm hmm. You know, it's it's probably helpful if you're wondering which creative pursuit to get into to find that for whatever it is you're doing and understand how it works,
1: right? Right, absolutely. Um, you, know, you know, one of the um, allegories or metaphors I always give in that regard is that, you know, if you want to be a firefighter, there's a process, a very clearly explained, explained and outlined process that you need to go, you know, go on in order to become a firefighter, mm-hmm. a police officer, the same thing, a lawyer, a doctor. Even, you know, even though writing is not the same as those dis- those other, you know, careers, you still have to go through a process of discovery and research. And the one thing I can say without a shadow of a doubt which confounds me to this day is that in a world where Google exists, I meet so many writers who are completely ignorant of the industry of like how it actually operates. And I mean, whether you're talking about book publishing, screenwriting, or uh, graphic novel production. Like they don't know anything about the business. And I'm like, well, how do you want to be a part of a business you don't even understand how it operates? That doesn't make any sense. So, you know, I just kind of feel like um, that's what that's the awakening I feel a lot of people need to, uh, you know, you know, have thrust upon them. They really need to understand how the business works. Right. And they don't, they simply do not. Right.
0: And you're of a time where you caught that first wave of the internet, the news groups, and now we're spoiled because we have podcasts and where people will lay out step for step for how pretty much any industry works. Right. Just amazing to me. So, you know, maybe one of my last questions then is just like looking forward. You you mentioned that challenge of finding balance between the paid gig work and creating your own original properties. And so, like, what are you looking forward to moving forward?
1: Well, there's a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, right now, um, you know, I'm I'm working on the Transformers Galaxies comic series that's mm. uh, distributed. I mean, published by IDW Publishing. Mm -hmm. um issue 10 came out about two weeks ago um i'm I'm writing issues 10 11 and 12 which is for transformers fans will know this it's an ultra magnus arc so we're doing a backstory kind of filling in the gaps in this new rebooted idw publishing transformers comic universe cool um i just i'm almost done with a a judge dread miniseries that i'm doing also from idw publishing called judge dread false witness Mm -hmm. and i'm still working on um, Star Trek Year Five, which is um, a continuation of the fifth and final year of the original cruise mission in comic book form. Okay, and, cool. Um, You're been, talking about the next generation or is this the No, no, school? no, Year Five. Year, the next generation has seven years. Like, yeah. remember, in the original Star Trek, they said it on our five-year mission, but the show got canceled in season three. Right. So we never saw the other two years. The, the series we're doing now is what would have happened in that fifth year. That's great. That's that's a wonderful cast to play with. I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, we're up to issue, I think, seventeen of twenty six. So we're 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 coming into the final stretch because we have a team of writers on that book because it's such a big concept. Yeah. With with that being said, um, obviously, you know, people can still check out the Transformers: War for Cybertron Siege on Netflix right now. It's going to be up you know, forever, I guess, you know. Yeah. And um, I got hired to work on some really big properties that I cannot discuss right now. And I wish I could, because right now, New York Comic Con is virtual right now. And there's a lot of huge announcements coming out there. So I'm praying that the thing that I've been hired to work on will be announced. I'm, I'm praying. I don't, I don't know if it will, but I'm, I'm crossing my fingers. So yeah, um, I have a lot of really cool stuff going on. Unfortunately, I can't talk about the newer, newer stuff, but I'm pretty excited about all of it. That's awesome.
0: Well, congratulations on that. And Thank you. For, for people who want to maybe find you or access your thoughts or just see what you have to say, how can they, how can they find you on the Internet?
1: Sure. Um, I'm usually on Twitter, at Brandon Easton, like mm-hmm. my whole name, just at Brandon Easton, all one word. Um, you can also find a lot of stuff that I put up on Instagram, and you can find me on Instagram at Brandon Easton Writer. Exactly how it sounds. Brandon Easton Writer. Right. That's my which, is which is how I found you, funny enough. Oh, that's true. So, yeah. So, though I mean, I'm always happy to um, talk to folks and connect with people and things like that. I mean, I always do panels. In fact, I had a panel at, la- at this past Comic-Con, San Diego. You know, they did it virtually. But I had a panel... All about this stuff that we're talking about right now
0: yeah and they pulled it off i I got i watched some of it it was kind of fun to be able to access that online exactly yeah
1: well cool well brandon it's been a pleasure having you on the on the show i i I really appreciate you reaching out to me and if you ever want to you know follow up another time in the future feel free to reach out i'd be happy to come back
0: i hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the fearless storyteller As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.